31 in Luke chapter 4, and while you're finding your place, I'll say a few words by way of introduction. Authority, submission, freedom, service. These are unlikely pairs to our modern minds. We think that authority and freedom ought to go together, perhaps, and submission and service. But these are the more natural pairs to us. How does authority go with submission? How does freedom go with service? We begin to see the answer unfold before us in the text this morning, in the person and work of Jesus. For in His work, He shows us what it means to live as one who is made in the image of God. He shows us how He's restoring God's creation, God's world, so that God's people might live in this way as well. For in the person of Christ and in His work, we see one with extraordinary authority, and yet one who wields that authority in submission to the Father's will. And as He wields that authority, He sets people free from the powers of this fallen world which hold them captive. And as He sets them free, He sets them free that they might be free to serve their Lord and Maker. This is the beginning of Christ's saving work in this gospel. And as Luke unfolds it, unfolds these narratives for us, he shows us that Christ's work of salvation goes far beyond anything that we could ever expect. For in his work, he is taking this world that has been marred and destroyed by sin and the fall, and he is redeeming it and he is restoring it as he restores people to their Lord, and to the worship, the faithful worship of their Maker. And so if you found your place, would you follow along with me in Luke chapter 4 as I read, beginning in verse 31, and I will read to the end of the chapter. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. 
He was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Father in heaven, as we come to your word and we see these narratives that portray to us the power and the authority of your Son whom you sent, we pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding, that you would work in us, in our hearts and in our minds to understand and to receive your word and to trust in him whom you sent as our Redeemer and our Savior, the one through whom all things were made, the one through whom you've made us new. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen and increase our faith this morning through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. While it's been said that familiarity breeds contempt, we saw that last week when we read about Jesus' sermon in Nazareth in his hometown. But it could also be said that familiarity breeds complacency. As we come to this text this morning, we find that these stories, for many of us, are familiar story, stories. And so as we read them, we struggle to understand what are we to do with them. At the same time as they're familiar, they speak to us about a world that is unfamiliar to us in this 21st century Western world. You see, many people, as they come to texts like this, they see the demonic, they see the spiritual world, and they wonder, can it be really so? Or could this, must not this be just some kind of literary figure of speech? We ought not to think that way, but we must acknowledge that in our culture and in our world, that is our natural disposition, for we live in a world that is ruled by a philosophy that says that all that exists is all that we can see and sense and hear in this material world. There's nothing beyond it, is what our world would have us believe. We don't want to believe those things which we cannot see and verify with our senses or with our technologies. And yet... Here in this narrative, we must remember that we have an account that was rooted in eyewitness testimony. People who saw Christ come into conflict with spirits from an unseen world. It's a world that we don't see that is normally veiled to us. And yet, in this time in history, these people bore witness to it. They heard the cries They saw the possessed men restored. They saw the power of Christ displayed before their eyes. And they declared what they had seen. And Luke has given it to us. We may not see this unseen world in our everyday existence, but we must acknowledge its reality. We must acknowledge that there is a real person who we call the devil, and there are real persons we know as demons who are fallen angels who have rebelled against their maker and ours. That they are real, and they exist, and they are the powers that rule this present world for a little longer. And the reason why we must acknowledge that they are real is because that is what will shake us from our familiarity with these passages that we know from childhood. We've come to regard as so simple, so straightforward, with such complacency. We need to acknowledge the reality of this world if we are to overcome our familiarity with the one who rules it. And so with this in mind, let it frame our thoughts as we approach this text and as we think about it. 
let us remind ourselves that there really is a spiritual world and that Jesus Christ really is Lord over it. There's something else that we need to bring to the text, some other context that we need to frame our thoughts. And here again, let me remind you of something Luke said at the outset of his gospel. Namely, that he has given us an orderly account. This is an orderly narrative, but the order is not strictly chronological. Last week, we saw that Jesus went into Nazareth, into a synagogue in his hometown, and there he preached to the people of his hometown. If we look in Matthew and we look in Mark, we see that both Matthew and Mark present the accounts we read today before that encounter in Nazareth. It's not because there's a disagreement between the different evangelists. The reason is that Luke has taken that account in Nazareth and put it at the very beginning of his gospel for a specific purpose. Because Luke wants us to see that the things that Jesus said about himself defined his ministry. And in the text that we see this morning, he is unfolding that, displaying that. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 4 there in verse 18 and 19, recall that Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And here we see Jesus come into Capernaum proclaiming good news to poor sinners. And he goes on to say, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as we reflect on that, what we realize is that what we are seeing in Luke's unfolding narrative is a depiction of Christ fulfilling that mission that he had been given as he releases people who were held captive to various powers in this fallen world. The very first one that we see is one that we can describe in this way. The powerful deliverer releases a captive soul. In verse 31 through 37, we see the powerful deliverer release a captive soul. Now notice Jesus comes into Capernaum, into, the, into Galilee, and he's teaching on the Sabbath. Another week at least has passed, and as was his custom as we saw last week, Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath week by week, and as he goes into the various towns, he's teaching and he's preaching God's word. And the people are amazed. They are astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew makes a similar comment. He tells us that the people responded to Jesus' teaching with a particular response of amazement. Namely, they were awed because he spoke as one who had authority in himself. And here Matthew distinguishes Jesus from the, from the scribes, the way in which the scribes taught. What the people were used to is is scribes who would come and they would teach on everyone else's authority. They would cite this dead rabbi and this teacher and this particular tradition that had come down to them through the centuries. And they'd say, here is the authority. Here is the authority on which I stand. And here comes Jesus and he's totally different. He doesn't cite these other external authorities, but he teaches as one who needs no other authority, for he is the one with authority in himself. We heard what that would sound like last week when he preached in Nazareth. 
It sounded like what he said after he read Isaiah. He did not simply expound the words of Isaiah in Isaiah's historical context, but he applied them to the context of the people of Nazareth, saying that these words are now fulfilled because I have come. These words are fulfilled in me. That's the kind of authority that amazed them. Jesus was coming into their towns and saying, the words that God spoke in times of old through His holy prophets about things that He would do, they are now coming to pass because I have come. I am the one who fulfills that word. The other day I was reading from Isaiah with my family. And as I was reading from Isaiah, I read these words from Isaiah 48.3, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. There, through the prophet, God is defending His deity. He is making the case that He is God and He alone, and the proof is simple. He declares a thing before it happens, and then He makes it happen. Show me someone else who does that, He says through Isaiah. Here we see one who comes into Nazareth and comes into Capernaum, says the things that God said, I bring to pass... What does that say about him? What awesome authority he has in his words, the way that he speaks. And yet we will not simply see authoritative words that sound authoritative, but we will see it in this narrative demonstrated as he shows that his words have power in them too. That he is one that is who speaks with power, not just authority, but as one who can actually do the things that he says. For he is the Son of God. And in this first narrative, then, what we see unfold is something like a hostage situation. While he's teaching and showing his authority through his teaching in this synagogue in Capernaum, a man comes into the synagogue. He's there. Luke tells us there's a man there. He has an unclean demon. And he has a clumsy way of saying this, not because Luke was a clumsy writer. He's actually quite a good writer. But he wants to emphasize the wickedness of this demon and his power. So he says something like an unclean demon spirit. All of these words brought together, which we translate the spirit of an unclean demon. And this demon shows his power as he cries out with a loud voice, a great voice. And he comes in and he initiates a confrontation with Jesus. He looks at him and he says, ha, a, a word that could be translated away. Or leave me alone. What do we have to do with one another is the sense of it. What do you have to do with me? He doesn't say me. We'll come back to that. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In this demon's testimony, we see that he does indeed know two things that are true. He knows his end, and he knows who Jesus is. He knows something that Jesus is in the process of making known to those who will be his disciples, but this one already knows it. That he has a latter end, and that end is destruction. And he wants to know, have you come for that now? What do you have to do with me? Leave me alone. He speaks with words of strength and confrontation as if somehow he might delay the inevitable. 
And it seems as if he's making a last-ditch effort to preserve himself. And so in the words that he speaks, it's as if he is holding this man hostage. Notice again those plural pronouns. What have you to do with us? And have you come to destroy us? The subtle implication in that is, if you want to destroy me, you're going to have to destroy us, this man. And Jesus will have this demon now. He does have an appointment with this man. And he has an appointment with that demon too. But as we read last week, the way that Jesus appropriated the words of Isaiah 61... He spoke about what he was going to do in terms of release and in terms of forgiveness. And he did not say anything quite yet about the fulfillment of the day of vengeance that Isaiah spoke about as well. That day is future. But this demon is not going to keep the Son of God from accomplishing that for which he came, the release of this captive soul. And so he speaks to him, saying, Be silent. Or literally, be muzzled, as if one's saying, muzzle yourself the way you might muzzle a beast. Be silent and come out of him. And in that last-ditch effort, that demon throws the man down. He throws him into their midst as if to say, I'll leave, I must, but I'm going to break some things on my way out. And yet, we see that the man is unharmed. He throws him down, having done him no harm. They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out? And what we see that Jesus did as he granted release to this man who was held captive and oppressed by this demon, he restored him whole. He did not merely restore him in part. He did not merely send away his enemy. He restored a man who was made in the image of God so that he might live as one made in the image of God. If we stop and reflect on the way in which Scripture presents the spiritual world to us, we can start to realize that very often Scripture pulls back the curtain on this world to show us a little bit about it. We can't fill in all of the details, but when Scripture pulls back the curtain, one of the things that we see that demons and the devil do, in addition to tempting and deceiving, is they seek to destroy the image of God in man. They seek to destroy the likeness of our Creator. He made us in His image. And so these people who are very often possessed by demons, we see that they're either incapacitated or they're very much like beasts. They're rather a bit like monsters. This is what they do. They seek to destroy God's creation. And here, the one through whom all things were created comes into Capernaum, and he begins to restore that creation. He begins to restore it by setting this man free from the power that held him captive. In the second narrative then, after Jesus departed from the synagogue. He goes to Simon's house. And once again, we will see that Jesus sets someone free from her captivity. Here she is not held captive by a demon power, but she is captive to her own sickness. And the way in which Luke describes this sickness makes it sound very demonic. 
Not as, I'm not suggesting that a demon is causing her illness. I'm suggesting that Luke is treating the illness the way that he treats demons. Viruses and bacteria are like demons in this way. They are creatures. They are part of this creation. But they are like, alike in this way as well. They're not part of the original creation. They're part of a fallen world, a world in rebellion against God. And when we experience illness, and when we experience sickness, and when we experience disabilities, what we are experiencing is a result of our sin, is a result not because we've sinned and therefore God's judging us with these things, but because Adam sinned. And God subjected all of creation to futility and all of creation to a curse. And so all of the pain and all of the suffering that we experience is part of that curse that was placed upon this fallen world. And here we see that it's so severe in the case of Simon's mother-in-law that she is completely incapacitated. She can't go with her family to the synagogue on the Sabbath. She can't even walk around her house and serve them. And the way that Luke describes her fever, it recalls the way he described the voice of that demon. That demon came into the synagogue or was in the synagogue with a great voice. And here, Simon's mother-in-law is in bed with a great fever. And just as Jesus rebuked that demon, Jesus will rebuke this fever, showing his mastery over all of it, showing his lordship and authority and power over all of it. So he receives an appeal from Simon and his family. They appeal to him, knowing that this one who just exercised that demon in the synagogue, he's the one who has power to deal with her as well. They recognize rightly, and they appeal to him. And he shows his willingness as he comes over and he stands over her, and he rebukes the fever, and it leaves her. Or the word could be say, it released her. It's the same word that we saw there in the words of Isaiah which Jesus read. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To free, to release, to forgive when it's applied to sins. And this woman here was released from that illness that oppressed her. And what did she do? She rose and she began to serve. Just as Jesus in the synagogue restored that man whole, he restores this woman whole, and the evidence is the fact that she begins to go about her regular duties within her household, serving them, doing what she would normally be doing. And now she's doing it in a new way, for as she serves them, she's serving her Lord. She's serving her Savior. She's serving the Son of God. And in these simple words, it's such a beautiful picture of the way in which God restores His people in such an extraordinary way as He rebukes this fever and immediately it leaves her. And we are left sometimes to wonder, what about me? What about my struggles and my illnesses? What about the things that hold me captive? We need to know and we need to understand that Jesus came to accomplish our salvation by forgiving our sins, by going to a cross, by atoning for our sins, but He did not come to do that and then to leave us there. 
He came to redeem us from something. The fullness of our salvation is not only in forgiveness, but in what God is making of us and what God is doing through us. It's a work of restoration. And here we see that as Jesus begins that work, as He begins to make them new and make them whole and restore them. We shouldn't minimize the importance because of this. We should not minimize the importance of the forgiveness that we need. We'll see in a moment that that's the priority. That that is the first and most important thing that we need. But we also need to see that Jesus has power to heal. He is willing and He is able. Nevertheless, we, we must acknowledge that sometimes it is His will that we should persevere in the midst of illness. In fact, very often, I say even normally, it is His will that we should persevere in our sufferings in this life so that we will finally experience the freedom that He brings the day of His return. Here Jesus is giving these people a foretaste of that day. A foretaste, just a little taste of what that will be like when He wipes away every tear from our eyes. When He brings us into a kingdom where there is no crying and there is no pain, there is no suffering and there is no death. We look forward to that day and yet we must persevere in this day knowing that it is not His will that we should be freed from every kind of suffering in our life. And yet, it is His will to free us from the things that hold us captive. Christ can free us from the captivity to the suffering, not by taking it away, but by giving us the strength to endure with it. But there are other things in our lives that hold us so captive that we need complete release. We don't see in our own day demons demon-possessed men running around, at least if we do, we're not quite sure. The next person I meet who I know for sure to be possessed by a demon will be the first. And yet every day we see people who are held captive to sin in different ways. I would say that in our case, the most common form of captivity may come through technology. You merely have to sit at a dinner table with many families in our country And look at how many people are looking at their phones instead of the face of the people sitting across from them. They're not whole in their context. They're not in the relationship that they should be in. They're held captive to something. And there are many other things that bind us. There are many other things that hold us in in its grip. And Jesus is able to free us from those things. We need to understand We sing this hymn, Would You Be Free From Your Burden of Sin? And the response is, there is power in the blood. And it's true, we need and must be free from our burden of sin. But that hymn goes on. It goes on to speak of more freedom. Would you be free from your passions and pride, it says. And what's the answer? It's the same. There's power in the blood. Or to put it another way, look to Christ who can set you free. Would you be wider, much wider than snow? Is the answer different? Does the refrain change and say, well, work really hard at that and make it happen in your life? No. There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. You see, 
for all the freedom that we need, for all the release that we need in our lives, the answer is always the same. We must come to Christ. For this one who has shown himself to be the powerful deliverer of captive souls, also here in Simon's house, shows himself to be the powerful deliverer of our bodies as well. The one who can free us from everything that holds us captive. Whether it's by enabling us to endure through difficulty in our life, or by delivering us and setting us free entirely from those things that hold us and weigh us down. And so these texts, they call us to look to him. And yet we wonder, as I said just a moment ago, we wonder, is he really willing to do this in my life? And we find our answer there in verse 41 and 42. I'm sorry, in verse 40 and 41. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Do you see what he's doing? So the sun is going down, it's getting late, and if it was you or me in that situation, we'd say we're closed for business, come back in the morning. But they brought to him every single person they could find any who had any kind of disease. Here's a woman who's suffering from a debilitating paralysis. Oh, and here's a child with a little cold. Here's a man who is possessed by a demon, and here's one who's just a little mentally off. And every single one of them, he laid his hands on them, and he healed them, and he cast out the demons. He did it for every single person who came to him. Now, he is physically not here with us. As I've said, he's physically not going to lay his hands on us. But every single person who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Every single person who cries out to him for release from their sins will be forgiven from those sins. Every single person who looks to Christ will receive what he offers. He will not turn us away because we think we're too sinful or we're too far gone or our problems are too great. For here, when they brought people to him, he demonstrated his great compassion that he is not only the powerful one who can deliver body and soul, but he is the compassionate one who is willing to live to deliver body and soul. And in doing that, he demonstrates once more his great authority as he rebukes the demons as he casts them out and as he silences them as they confess him as the Christ. And now, there is one thing I must say. There is one thing to which Jesus willingly submitted himself. We might even say to which he was held captive. Not in a negative way, but a positive way. He was willingly submitting himself to the Father's will in everything. For the next morning, as day broke, he departed, and he went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. And Luke piles up these phrases to really emphasize it. They wanted to keep him there. What he was doing was great, and they wanted it for Capernaum, just like Nazareth. The people of Nazareth were saying, do what you did elsewhere. Do it here. Heal your hometown. So too the people of Capernaum would have made this his hometown. 
But Jesus knew that he had a mission, that there was a purpose for which he was sent. And so when it was day, he departed. He went into a desolate place, which we will see in Luke's unfolding gospel, was a place where he would go when it was his desire to pray and be with his Father in prayer. And he said to them as they tried to keep him from leaving, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He's willing to say, but he had something to do. God had sent him to perform a mission, to fulfill a mission, and that required him to go about Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God's grace and God's forgiveness throughout Galilee and all Judea. And Luke doesn't say it explicitly here, but we're going to see as this gospel unfolds that ultimately Jesus demonstrates this willingness to submit to the Father's will time and time again, showing us where His priorities lie. For He will go ultimately to the cross for the very same reason. His disciples would have kept Him from going to it. They would have held Him back and said, don't go to Jerusalem. You know what they want to do to you there. But He set His face toward that cross, and he went to that cross because the Father sent him to accomplish our release. And the most fundamental thing that we need, the most fundamental thing that the people of Capernaum needed was the release that he could only grant by giving his life on a cross for their sin. By rising again from the dead as the first fruits of a new creation. It is God's will that you should be restored. It is God's will that you should be made whole. It is God's will that you should bear His image with sweet submission to His will, with joyful submission and joyful service. And it is His will that sometimes you should do that with a little bit of suffering, a little bit of trial, knowing that He is able to sustain you through it as well that He will ultimately bring all that He has promised to completion, to fulfillment, when finally and fully He releases you from all of your sin and all of your ailments, all of your struggle, in order to serve Him without fear. That's the picture that we see here as we come to a close in Luke chapter 4. And as we see this picture, we are confronted with a question. Do we want the freedom that He offers? Do we want what Christ is offering us? Or do we simply want a Christ who gives us what we want on our own terms? So the people of Nazareth wanted. Christ is offering us full forgiveness and full freedom through Himself. He's not necessarily, not in most cases, as I've said again and again, He's not in most cases offering us freedom from every aspect of this fallen world in the present. That promise will be fulfilled. And yet there is freedom in no one else. You cannot find this release from someone else or from some new method or from some new sophisticated approach to whatever ails you. It's true that we seek help from doctors when we struggle with the typical illnesses, and we're right to do so. Don't misunderstand me as saying that we're not. But the things that we need most of all, we cannot find in someone else. 
There is no other Christ than the one who we see here in Luke 4. There is no other Christ than the one who went to a cross. There is no other Christ than the one who calls us to follow him, calls us to suffer as he suffered, calls us to serve as he served, calls us to submit ourselves fully to the Father's will. And the challenge for us when we come to texts like this is will we recognize him for who he is and will we follow him? It's not just enough to recognize him for who he is. The demons did that. They knew who he was. They knew that he was the Holy One of God, the one whom God had set aside, who set apart for this peculiar mission. They knew that he was the Christ, the Son of God. They confessed it. They did not have the option to follow him. They would not have had they had it. It is men and women made in the image of God whom he calls to follow him, who he offers that freedom to, is us, we who are here, to whom he makes that offer of freedom and forgiveness and strength for the day and hope for tomorrow. And so he calls us to recognize him for who he is. And in recognizing him, to commit ourselves to follow him all our days. We have come to Christ if we have trusted in him. Let us never cease to do so. There is only one before whom demons yield. There is only one with such power to wield. There is only one who can make broken men whole. There is only one who can set free our souls. There is only one Christ. He is God's holy one. There is only one Christ. He is God's only son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are weak. We are fallen. We bear in ourselves the effects of sin in our lives and sin in this world. We suffer weakness, weakness in our minds and weakness in our bodies. We suffer illness and disease and all manner of ailments. We know that you, O oh Lord, are powerful to save and that you are able that you are willing to deliver us from these things. But we also know that you demonstrate your power in weakness. And so you have delayed that final delivery, that final act of liberation, so that we might learn more and more throughout all our days to trust in your Son, the one who has within himself authority, and power. May we never cease to trust in Christ alone. May we never cease to follow him. May we never cease to look to him for the forgiveness and the transformation that we need. We pray all these things in the name of your Holy One. In Jesus our Lord, amen.